Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. I'm delighted to welcome Ken Womack back to the pod today to discuss his new biography of Mal Evans, Living the Beatles Legend. As the Beatles' long-standing roadie, Mal was with the boys every step of their amazing journey, but until now, his story was just never fully told. Ken's book is revelatory, it's fascinating, heartbreaking, as for the first time we get to hear the real story of one of the Beatles' closest friends. Ken Womack, hello, welcome back to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, Joe. Thank you so much for having me back. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. We are here to talk about something which I don't say lightly, definitely my favourite Beatle book of the year, which is your book, Living the Beatles Legend, The Mal Evans Story. Uh, just an opportunity to tell you on air that a brilliant book, it gripped me from start to finish. I found out so much new stuff. So first of all, just to thank you for putting this book together. Oh, well, thank you. And I sure appreciate the kind words. And coming from you, that means a lot because I know that nobody reads more Beatles books than you, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) I heard you say on another podcast interview that you you didn't really have an interest in in writing about Mao at certain points. Tell us a little bit about how and and why that changed and, and, and how this project kind of came to you. I've always been interested in Mal, I think, as all of us who are Beatles aficionados are, right? You know, here is that that fellow who is uh, uh, photobombing so many great Beatles pictures. Um, we're always happy to see his image, and uh, it seems like he was everywhere. And so, uh, you know, I was interested as as far as, as that went. I never imagined that there would be a, a full story to be told about him. However... Uh, when Gary Evans contacted me through our, our friend Simon Weitzman, himself uh, an aficionado and a writer of Beatles books, when he came my way, uh, I knew within minutes of Zooming with Gary that that I would do something for him. This was uh, around the beginning of COVID, so hmm. summer of 2020. And um, uh, Gary asked me to write his father's story. And uh, Gary is a wonderful, cuddly fellow, much like his dad. And there's really no telling him no, <laughs> as you might imagine. Yeah. Um, so I kind of knew at that point I was hooked. The best part, though, was uh, I said, so I'll do this for you. But is it true that Mal had all of this stuff? And Gary said, um, well, yeah, do you want to see it? <laughs> I said, absolutely, I do. Uh, of course, it was necessary because I was figuring I'd get 80,000 words out of a story about Mal hmm. just by working the regular sources, trying to call some folks, who, some, some eyewitnesses and survivors, that sort of thing. But all that changed when the materials arrived. They're quite profuse. The diaries, which run from 1963 to 1974, there are four or five lofty, voluminous notebooks that are scattered around that same period, including one from 1975, that's quite lengthy, maybe 150, 200 pages or so. And then um, there were several manuscripts. There was his book, which was called Living the Beatles Legend, 200 Miles to Go. Another manuscript called Beatles USA, which was a touring synopsis of 1965 with a large section on Elvis. And then the third item was a sort of a novella or short story he was working on called Roadie. Um, and I subsequently learned that it may have been one of these projects that had stopped and started several times. Um, 
And then there were lots of documents just sort of randomly thrown around these boxes, receipts, lots of letters, letters during his lifetime to his wife, letters from his wife, lots of letters after his death that clearly had been added by Lily and Gary and others to the materials. Um, Quite a correspondence about the life of his manuscript after his death that was carried on uh, with his wife. And then also pictures, maybe 2,000 or so photographs. It's hard to organize those. They're just all over the place, um, but I'm, I'm slowly getting there. It's been a, a kind of an organizational project for the last couple of years. And every now and then I'll just stop everything I'm doing and refine it a little bit further. It's uh, still has a ways to go okay. uh, in terms of some of the organization, but I, I want it to be just right so that someday, of course, depending on what Julie and Gary Evans want to do with it, that scholars are able to have access to it. Before we talk about, bit more about Mao's story in particular you wrote an excellent two-volume book on George Martin another person which has been known as the fifth Beatle. I'm curious to just compare the two projects what were the differences in obviously George's life is much longer what were the main differences in in writing this book as opposed to, to working on George's life well I mean they're both subjects I'm interested in right the idea of servicing the artwork. And when I teach the Beatles in class or think more loftily about them, I think of them as this kind of evolving art object, one that takes place very specifically within a seven-year time frame and uh, and moves very quickly and expeditiously from Love Me Do uh, through, obviously, Abbey Road. These are folks who you know, exist in service to that project. It's hard to find another person who could have been more important to that than George Martin. Mal Evans comes close. He's important, though, in a different way, right? He is, he's the kind of person who makes everything possible. Nobody does it alone. Music and art are social productions. And uh, there's Mal, right, participating in that social production. Uh, Sometimes, specifically, he'll share a line or a phrase for a lyric, or he'll bang an anvil or play a keyboard note. Yet other times, you know, it's his mere existence that serves the project. He's the reason they can uh, stay up all night and work on a new song. Uh, Think about the sessions for Sgt. Pepper, the White Album, you know, 2,000 hours worth of stuff, right, that had to be made possible And Mal's the guy who would do that. You know, he was the one who kept the equipment up to date and and working on the road. But more importantly, in the studio, as they kept expanding their repertoire and their palette, Mal had to keep it in working order all night sometimes, right? And that meant if they really were working, and as Paul McCartney called it, on heat uh, on a project, you know, Mal might have to wake somebody up at at a music store and say, hey, the boys need new blanks <laughs> and they may bring it to the studio or Mal might go out to, to the vendor and, and pick it up himself. So, mm. um, or, you know, going back to the anvil, they, Paul said, I want an anvil. Well, where do you get an anvil? Right. Uh, Mal went to, uh, they were in Twickenham of course, and he went to a Twickenham theatrical props management store and he rented it <laughs> you know, and then promptly left it at Apple studios for a while. And they called him and complained, when are we getting our anvil back? Where is that anvil now, I wonder? I wish I knew. Uh, (laughs) Gary Evans and I were talking about that once. You know, where is that thing? (laughs) 
it will, I'm sure, arrive as everything else has in our in our Beatle lives. Going back to the the start of of Mal's story, childhood wise, how similar was his background to the Beatles' background? Was it basically a, a kind of working class upbringing that Mal had? Um, I would say so. Yeah, his his father worked on the docks, uh, and like his father before him, Mal grew up in a had a very happy childhood and very, very well provided for lots of time to hang out and play with his sisters, et cetera. But like a lot of parents, he wanted something better for his son. And uh, uh, Mao's father made sure that happened. Mao was the first person in his family to have an education. Mao subsequently, as you know, would get a job uh, with the British post office, the GPO as a telecommunications engineer, which was made possible by a, a post-war program called the um, Youth and Training Program, which uh, I actually, in my research, I talked to some folks who were in the program, not with him, but hey, were in it generally just to learn about what kind of courses they took and, and that sort of thing. Hmm. And Mal graduated and got a really a first-class job right there in Liverpool where he wanted to be was able to afford for the first time in his family, he had a car and then he had uh, a home, he had a mortgage. So, you know, Mal was developing into quite the middle-class citizen uh, with a lot of uh, future ahead of him, including a pension uh, for retirement. So, you know, he had built out quite a nice life for himself. And then into the story come our four friends, the Beatles. One of the things about your book that's interesting you talk about some other people kind of around the cavern, other other people that might have worked alongside Neil and got this this kind of job helping helping the Beatles out. How did Mao get that gig essentially? And what do you think was it about his personality that meant that at the start of his time with the Beatles that he was kind of kept on? I really think it had a lot to do with George Harrison, who by the time that they're on the cusp of big time fame in the summer of 63 prior to the release of she love you you know they mal was a known quantity he was a guy who got things done right i mean he proved himself mightily with the windscreen incident where not only did he get them safely back to liverpool but he also fixed the windscreen before he returned the van i mean he was just a guy who knew how to do things he was 5 years older than they were so he was allegedly mature <laughs> I say allegedly because there were times when I'm sure they were more mature than he was, but he mm. knew how to do things and um, certainly more than and than a lot of the other younger folks. He was vastly dependable and he was a known quantity. By the time that happens, he's known them close to two years um, at that point. Sometime in late 61, he rumbles down those uh, cavern steps and here's what sounded like him to be good rock, as he said later. He believed in them, right? And uh, that little small group of folks that that they seemed to carry around with them, you know, it would expand sometimes. Derek Taylor would be in it, Tony Barrow. That small group were all true believers. And uh, I think they needed that, especially as things went on and the world started to get really big. And uh, I don't know if they've ever used this word, but it had to feel scary at times, right? Yeah. And Mal's a guy you wanted to have. Um, as his wife later said, sometimes the Beatles would be jealous of who had Mal, <laughs> who Mal was working with. He was a good time, in addition to being, you know, a guy who could lift uh, Paul McCartney's bass amp by himself. You mentioned earlier the domesticity of, of Mal's life, and most listeners will probably know that. 
by the time he was involved with the Beatles. He had his wife, Lily, and his first child, Gary. The book's obvious about the the way that Mal was, was torn between that domestic life, as you say, on the way to quite a comfortable life. He wasn't going to be scrounging for money at any point. What was Lily, his wife's reaction initially to, to Mal kind of taking on this job with the Beatles? Well, when it was just her and Mal, she said, you don't you know, if you're trying to be a star, you don't need it. You've already got those qualities. She had a suspicion that Mal himself wanted to be known. And she was right, um, as wives can be. You know, she really had a sense of who he was. Now, when the chips are down and the whole family is saying, don't do it, she's the only one who supports him. You know, he really had Lily against a wall of naysayers. I'm glad, obviously, uh, that things went the way they did. I think Mouse ably served the legend and made God knows how many extra moments of art possible. Having said that, it's hard not to believe what his dad said, which is everything started to change when he hooked up with those four lads. You mentioned him earlier that when Mal comes into the organization, Neil Aspinall is obviously there. He's the able assistant to the Beatles, just as, as Mal would be. Talk a little bit about about their friendship, because they would, I'm guessing they would have to have got on because they must have been working, especially in the touring years, so closely together. What was the story of their relationship? I wish I knew so much more about this. I, I feel happy with what I've been able to provide in, in this book, but I feel like there's much more there. Mal and Neil were tight. So much so that I'm pretty convinced that they played a kind of good cop, bad cop on people. It was them against the world as far as the Beatles were concerned. They trusted each other implicitly. They helped each other, particularly through bad times. There are moments after moment where Neil is helping Mal out in the 60s and early 70s, you know, when they've both been clobbered metaphorically by Alan Klein. Poor Neil seems to be going to a bad place as far as substance abuse. There's Mal for him. So mm. they they were tight. Um, they lived together for several years, obviously traveled the world together with the Beatles, spent a lot of hours, just the two of them driving back and forth to Liverpool, particularly in the early years when uh, the boys were just moving to London. Well, really even through the middle of those years, actually, certainly until Mal's family moved to London in 1967 and Neil Later in 68, began to build a more permanent home there. But those guys were tight. And um, there's a, a great moment at the Beatles Fest in 1975 when somebody asked Mal about Neil and he just stopped and he said, he's my best pal. Hmm. You know, And I, I think the simplicity said it all. It was Neil who, in the last weeks of Mal's life, came to tell him that we're putting Apple back together, which uh, I wish it had been enough for Mal. You mentioned the fact that Mal would then travel the world with the Beatles. And one of the great things about your book is it really shows a side of that touring years that the Beatles had that, that isn't covered as well in other books. As soon as that, that first American trip happens, as all listeners will know, the, the game changes. How does Mal change at that point when he goes from those 63 tours? It's still quite provincial. It's still quite small. Suddenly, as soon as America hits, it's a whole different a different game. How, how did that affect and change Mal? I wanted to try to, by focusing on those tours, give people a sense of just what they would do to people. Larry Kane was really helpful, particularly in the American part, when it starts up and helping, you know, helping to explain that these tours were not real life, right? They were like circuses that moved 
Well, circuses do move. So <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's just go with that metaphor a little bit more, but it did change them, right? You know, suddenly people would do anything and everything to be part of the Beatles world. Mal and the Beatles themselves are subjected to this, take advantage of it at times. It simply had the danger of being, you know, a, a long running party at a certain extent and the Beatles, for much of their career, are going to be the hosts of those parties. You know, later it'll be the swinging 60s and, you know, everybody in their carnaby wear. And the Beatles are the ones throwing the bashes. They just may have names like All You Need Is Love <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. um, or, or what have you. But, yeah, things change very quickly. It's hard to descend back into normal life after those experiences. And, of course, as you move from 63 into 64 and especially into 65, there's a level of violence that mm. begins to emerge and uh, creates all sorts of stressors just by itself, right? That begin to affect the boys and Mal and Neil. After a while, there's a strong sense that, you know, poor Mal is throwing up his hands and trying to get local police forces to believe him that they don't have enough guys when they send two constables, right? Issues like that, really. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about the individual Beatles and their relationship with Mal. It's interesting how some of those people that you mentioned earlier that are part of that Beatles world, Derek Taylor kind of felt like George's close friend. Magic Alex obviously is attached to John. Uh, and Mal generally think, and the book sort of bears this out up to a point, he's kind of Paul's guy. Paul is the Beatle on the front of the book. So what do you think... Was it about about that friendship? Why do you think Mal and Paul were, were drawn to each other? Yeah, I, I think to a certain extent, it was because Paul is, while others at times get credit for this, it's Paul who's out in front trying to have new artistic experiences. It's Paul who wanted to go see the sights. You know, it's often Paul who was interested in growing intellectually. Mal was a wonderful companion for that. You know, he was up for anything. And as we know, there's Mal, right? I mean, he's always ready and available to be part of those those adventures, you know. So naturally, they took their safari together or the trip with uh, to go see Jane Asher in 1967. Mal was a great traveling companion. Now, George, of course, will take up that mantle later in 68, 69 and really into the 70s where Mal will be his constant companion. But it's it's really Paul early on and and Mal really worshipped him. You know, he admired Paul. But I think he probably felt like all of us having watched the docuseries Get Back, right, where Paul invents a song out of thin air. I, Mal just wanted to see that again and again as much as possible. He was absolutely besotted by what the Beatles were able to do. And, you know, here we are six decades later and everybody still is. So <laughs> <laughs> thankfully, Paul is the is clearly someone that, that's important uh, to Mal. Did the other Beatles have a similar level of of friendship for Mal. I mean, we'll come to the the latter part of Mal's life, obviously, as we as we continue this conversation. But in those touring years, did you get a sense from the the diaries he was accepted and he enjoyed the other three's company as much as Paul? Oh, absolutely. And um, you know, not just that, um, he was quite fulfilled. Different kinds of aspects for all of them. You know, as especially as they develop their own creative means for engaging with the world. George comes along a little later, as we know. It's a handy thing to have a Mal Evans, right? When you're pursuing this kind of musical art, you know, he's a guy who can uh, fix things and, and make things happen. So, you know, he's essential 
to the artistic side of their enterprise. As I said earlier, he's uh, he's eminently valuable in terms of uh, his ability to help both you know, with the apparatus or even to bounce ideas off of. We have lots of examples of that. Mm-hmm. Um, their relationships grow at different levels, though. I mean, obviously, he starts with George, but he has this long, long, very close relationship with Paul that I think would have continued just fine had it not been for the lawsuit uh, between Paul and the other Beatles. I can almost imagine a lawyer uh, behind Paul saying, you know, uh, you, if you're really suing to get out of this partnership, you kind of have to give up using Mal since he's one of the benefits of the partnership. Mm. We get that moment that feels cruel in the moment, but I, I understand why Paul said it the way he did when he said, I don't need you anymore. I think he was in some sense trying to protect Mal and sort of free him to go work for the others, which he does <laughs> for the rest of his life. It, it's it's a shifting kind of carousel, uh, those relationships, you know, sometimes he's working closely with John for weeks and months on end. And then it's George and it's Ringo. As we said, the touring years come to an end. And one of the things that the book really got across was that, you know, you have that thing that one of the reasons that, that Brian Epstein had troubles was because the, the touring came to an end because what would he do now? There's no sense really from the book i think in the book you actually say that mal got busier in a way at certain points after the the touring years finished how did he respond to those tours ending and as we go into 67 what kind of duties would mal be doing then in in replacement of the touring years i find that shift while subtle i guess in some ways to be the most interesting part of the the larger story because you know they're making up their jobs as they go along the job of rock star is something that was supposed to last a couple of years until you became a flash in the pan and then you would have to go get a real job that you probably weren't qualified for that would uh you know have you doing something uh, of a blue collar ilk for the rest of your life a few singers from liverpool who had briefly made it and then didn't would be on the cabaret circuit, which didn't seem very appealing. The larger point, though, is um, here you are trying to pursue a job that really doesn't have any explanation in the mid-1960s, right? It just, it exists and they're making it up. So there was a logic toward the end of the touring days and, and with the end of the touring days that I guess, well, we won't be doing as much, right? Because we won't be on the road. That's the reason for a band to exist. Even George Harrison said, oh, well, I'm not a Beatle anymore, right? Yeah. You know, and they were all wrong. And what's interesting is quite suddenly, Neil and Mal were more busy. Mm. And it was more time consuming because suddenly the four Beatles are not in the same place. Damn it, they'd gotten married or they bought homes of their own. And they're shuttling between all of these places, trying to keep it all together. You know, it's a, it's a shame that Brian didn't necessarily find himself in that world, you know, because there was certainly more for him to do, too, in that period. We'll never know because he dies before Apple really gets into full swing. But if you're Mal and Neil, you're busier than ever. In fact, strangely, you know, you don't have the respite of four or five hours sleep in a hotel room because now they're going to stay up all night recording. Yeah. <laughs> It's not very long until they do that, right? I mean, almost immediately with Strawberry Fields Forever and moving into the Sgt. Pepper project, they're keeping long hours. So bizarrely, they were even more busy as the Beatles invented the job of what a rock star is, or at least their version of what Mm. that's going to be. As the book says, 
there were some, you know, carnal benefits for Mal on tour. It must have been thrilling at points, even though, as we all know, by 66, some of that stuff is just not there anymore for different reasons. Did well, even by 65, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. the Beatles tire of it fairly quickly. If you read the, you know, between the lines, they've, they realize that the road is in fact, not a party. It's a confining, lonely place. And of course, as their fame gets bigger and bigger, it stifles them more and more. Hmm. Was there any sense of Mal missing that though? Didn't, did he, were there any parts of that that he, he kind of just missed? Yeah. You know, I looked for those kind of moments and I don't really see them. Okay. You know, his mission, his brief, if you will, was to work for the Beatles. And if the Beatles said, we're going on the road again, we've decided that Brian's convinced us we're going to tour in 1967, Mal would have said, great. It really depended on what their goal was. If they said the goal is to make Sgt. Pepper, that's the goal. Mm. So Mal would throw himself headlong into that. We're going to go to Twickenham and make a, a back to our roots, get back project. Okay, that's the brief, right? You know, it really didn't matter what it was. He would serve the client, and the client was John Paul George Ringo. Something else that he embraces, again, that I was almost unaware of before I read your book, is Mal's quite a spiritual person. Mal goes along with the spirit of the times, and that reaches its peak in in India when the Beatles go there at the start of 68. Tell us a little bit about that. What part of, of that appealed to Mal, and did he enjoy the the jaunt to India. Oh, he did. I mean, it was, you know, it was George who convinced him to read Autobiography of a Yogi, which became a very important book for Mal. When Mal was with George and Patty in India, he was imbibing the same literature. He was connecting in the same way. He went to the lectures that Maharishi offered, you know, about karma and about reconnecting with nature and those sorts of things, you know. So Mal was right there imbibing it too. And, uh, you know, he, he wasn't necessarily a religious person. That wasn't necessarily in his family's background. But, you know, again, if it were important to a Beatle, it's going to become important to him. He was a pretty good reader. He read a lot. He shifted amongst, uh, he loved sci-fi novels. He read literary fiction. He would read, as, as we just talked about, you know, maybe some Eastern philosophy that might be suggested by George Harrison. He loved to go to the movies. He had an engaged mind, which, by the way, I was surprised about. I didn't know what to expect from his brain. And this is why we have sayings, I guess, in our culture and on your show, like you can't judge a book by its cover, right? You know, Mal is is a man of some depths. Um, he's not just a big oaf. Um, he had his own aspirations and ambitions. That that makes him all the more interesting. As 68 goes on, Apple becomes part of the Beatles world. Thusly, as you say, it becomes part of Mal's world. And Mal becomes involved with a group called the Ivies, later to be known as Badfinger, which is something that was very important to Mal. Tell us a little bit about, about that relationship, how he became involved with them. Yeah, it was kind of a slow-moving enterprise, I guess at times a slow-moving car wreck. But it was, uh, you know, Mal uh, was friends with Bill Collins. When the Beatles said, we're going to start this thing, Mal said, great, let's do it. For a time, he was slated to be part of the upper management of Apple. That seemed like a great idea to Paul McCartney when he suggested it. But of course, the problem is, if Mal becomes that, you're not going to have him around the studio anymore. You know, mm -hmm. you can't have both. Mal can't be all things. 
And they realized, particularly as they then turned to the White Album, they need the other guy, right? They need the guy at their beck and call all the time. They'd already seen what it looked like to lose Neil to Apple. So they get him assistant, and Mal becomes kind of an A&R guy for Apple. And by the way, it gets to a certain point in the early 70s where there are only two people working on behest of Apple, and it's Mal and George. I don't think anybody cares anymore um, in terms of really creating something in terms of artist management, et cetera. But Mal took that brief really seriously, and he went out and he cultivated the Ivies and later Badfinger, fell in love with them, and um, really worked hard. As he, as he would for the Beatles, he worked hard for Badfinger. He would say, I am going to, everything I do for you, I'm going to treat you exactly like I do the boys. This is going to be very serious business. I believe in your art. Mal produced them, as you know, created a top five hit with them. But it's it's one of the great tragedies of Mal's story that he is embargoed away from Badfinger by Alan Klein in a, in a moment of real cruelty. Do you think there was a sense with Badfinger that, Mal was sort of using them as a kind of uh, a surrogate Beatles. I don't think so at all. I think he was, he really believed in them. He would, you know, spend time with them and their families. Uh, Gary Evans, remember socializing with uh, the families, even after Mal's death, occasionally, you know, they would see them. They was real part of their lives. Mal meant business with them. He believed that they were as good as anybody um, and could go all the way. And, you know, for a moment there, they did. Oh, they just had terrible luck in terms of management. Again, I mean, we can put a lot of this and other things at the feet of Alan Klein. The cruelty with which he separates them from Mal is is simply payback, I think, at a certain level, because he couldn't just fire Mal. Mal didn't work for him, right? And he had the same issues with Neil. He wanted to get rid of Neil, too, and couldn't. So, you know, he did the next best thing. He made their lives hell. And... um the people who paid the most price, it really wasn't Mal who just adored them and wanted them to be a success and would do anything for them. It was bad finger, right? I mean, you know, you know what happens there. The gulf created by Mal's absence and Billy Collins' paranoia really allows Stan Polly to get in there and, like Alan Klein with the Beatles, commence to ripping them off. Something that sort of tied in well for your book, I suppose, you mentioned it earlier, is the Get Back film, where it's it's maybe the first time that the general public get to see a huge amount of footage of Mao. In the anthology, Mao is introduced, we get the still image of Mao, and Paul tells, as you say, the story of the broken windscreen on the M1. Uh, but Get Back is the first real representation where he's this, he's there, isn't he? You know, he's in, he's a big part of that film. Do you think that having looked at this man's life in so much depth, do you think that what we see in Get Back is a, a kind of fair reflection of Mao, the way that he's he interacts with them and the way that they talk to him? Uh, for the most part, I mean, there are some things left out that would have been even more revelatory. But yeah, I mean, that's Mao. That's a working day, right? You know, I mean, he was often doing most of that at night, but suddenly disappeared because he's off on an errand. He has the Rolodex and he's constantly working for them. So it's a pretty good representation, I think. There he is when you have a line. There he is later when everybody's flagging and suddenly he shows up with tea. He and and Neil really prided themselves on trying to anticipate like Radar O'Reilly and MASH, you know, what their next need was going to be. So Mal loved to be the one who suddenly showed up. Here's food. Yeah. You know, or they would have guests over in the studio. Mal suddenly shows up with hors d'oeuvres because you treat guests nicely when they visit, right? So he wanted the Beatles to look good, to look hospitable. Um, that was part of his mission was for them to look 
to seem as favorable as possible to anybody in the public who might encounter them. I mean, it you couldn't ask for for a better person in this way. So I think we got a pretty good representation there of of what life was with Mal was probably like. Uh, I, I only wish we had more. Mm. Right um, now, uh, you know, aficionados like yourself didn't need docu series to tell you about Mal. There is a great moment that, uh, fortunately, I found uh, some folks who had a photograph from that day when John is having uh, a terrible moment with a heroin and uh, is getting sick. And it, Mal knows something's wrong with John. And you can see him shuttling back and forth between studios that day. Mal seems to be on the move. Well, he was. He was constantly checking on John Lennon. And uh, fortunately, a ph- photographer there could see Mal coming in with the head of steam behind him, you know, on a mission. And he took a, a photo of Mal, which we have in the book. And it's Mal. He's on a mission to save John Lennon, takes him <laughs> off to a bathroom where John is quite sick. That's who he was. His job, as he read it, was to uh, intuit those moments and to know how his Beatles were feeling on a particular day. I mean, when George quits. Mal's with George that night. Everybody else is wondering, what are we going to do about George? Mal knows that he's on the docket to meet with George that night to work on the King of Fuh. I mean, a brief word. You mentioned pictures there just for listeners. The pictures in the book are revelatory, beautiful. Were they all from the archive? About 70% of them were. Uh, The Beatles Book Library has been very generous. They have probably 100 photos of Mal. Robert Whitaker's son, Benjamin, He's a great fellow. Found another one recently. Uh, he just showed me um, that we'll have in book two. Apple stood up when we needed them to with two very fine photos that we would not have gotten anywhere else. Mm. The photo of Mal on the roof, which they own exclusively. Uh, and also the photograph of Mal posing with the other uh, designers around the Sgt. Pepper set. Those sorts of things are just invaluable. A lot of people really stood up for us. Fans had a few photos. We have some stuff that'll blow people away in book two that can't wait to share. The ones I chose for this one, we had a hundred photos or so that we were allowed to have. And I picked them really based upon what do we need to tell the story with. The thing that really came across to me about the photos just briefly is as someone that has looked at Beatles pictures for a lot of years, you get the the sense of the story. When you look at a picture, you say, right, that's a 64 American tour. That's a 68 mad day out picture. And the thing about this book is it's those same pictures, but Mal is in every single one. The pictures really bring across every step of the way. He's he's in them, isn't he? It's incredible. It's almost yeah. like opening another door of the Beatle well because he's he's there. And, you know, you would see him in other books. It's not like people didn't know that he existed. He wasn't a ghost. It's the same story that we've all read, but there's another figure in all the pictures and he's at the, in the front and centre. It's, it's incredible. It blew my mind, as you can probably tell. There's a, a selection of photos that there are just too many of them and, and they'll be in book two, but there's a selection of photos for Magical Mystery Tour because Mal works so closely on that hmm. on the ground every day. And um, Mal took a lot of fo- photos out at the uh, the Air Force Station. They're great. Uh, a lot of them are beautiful, in fact, and, and I'd never seen before. But some of my favorites engage the eye in exactly the way you just said – They'll, he'll have photographs of the band playing, you know, next to that massive concrete monolith, right? Yeah. We've all seen that a million times in the I Am The Walrus segment. But sometimes they'll take a wide shot and you'll see them standing in scene in the film doing that song. And then there are all their cars. It's wonderful, you know, or you'll see 
kids sitting around nearby, um, just hanging out, waiting for the next scene. They're these kind of uh, candid shots of what's happening on the set, and they're wonderful in the same way. Okay. The split happens, as we know, the aforementioned Klein appears in the picture. This was obviously, the book makes clear, difficult for Mao. What was his response to this group that he was so associated with starting to, to go their separate ways? How did he deal with that? I mean, he's heartbroken, you know. I mean, he's right there with Paul in tears in Cavendish Avenue when, you know, when they had the divorce meeting in September 1969. But he does the job. And so, you know, he's also there in Toronto with John and Eric Clapton and Yoko, et cetera. I mean, Mal is uh, in a weird way, even more present than they are with each other around that period. Um, I mean, he's absolutely heartbroken by it, but he was convinced that they were in trouble when they stopped touring and they didn't have that constant reaffirmation of four friends in a hotel room or what have you sort of stuck together four friends against the world. So Mm -hmm. he had kind of seen it coming for a while. And one thing that had helped him to weather it was he thought he would be working with Badfinger for years. You know, I mean, he was putting everything he had into them, arguably creates their best radio hit uh, with No Matter What, which he worked very, very doggedly on. Um, had a great conversation right before finishing the book with Joey Molland about, you know, exactly what Mal did uh, to bring that off. You know, this was going to be his work. He really wanted to be a kind of A&R production man. And uh, Alan punctured that right in the middle when Mal had started to really accrue some skills. Uh, and I'll say it again in a cruel way. I mean, there's really no excuse for that kind of behavior, particularly since he was serving the enterprise that Alan was supposed to care about in Apple. Right. I mean, this is a guy who every day would wake up and, you know, Al was, Mal was such a good natured, good meaning, well-meaning person. You know, there's that moment before, uh, even after Alan has tried to fire him where Mal is coming up with ideas on how they can serve Badfinger and and maybe Alan could give him a chance to do this or that. And you can almost see Alan Klein, not even for a minute, believing any of it. So as you say, that that doesn't work out for Mal. Did you get the sense that as 71, 72 happens, that the Beatles got a sense that Mal was struggling did you get a sense that they offered support yeah and and one of them did and uh and it makes sense i mean john was obviously going through his own things as was ringo george was too by 73 74 hmm. but he could tell that mal was struggling and um you know uh, readers of this book if you if you love george before you're gonna love him even more yeah has some of his own unsavory behavior we all do uh but man he did what you do for a friend when mal was working on liner notes and George thought some of them were out of line. He he called him out on it. He said, you know, I'm, I'm your friend. I'm going to tell you the truth here. When uh, Mal, when he realized Mal still wanted to be in production after the whole business declined, George got him lessons essentially when, when Mal, he knew Mal wanted to be a songwriter, then great. Let's get one of your compositions on the Ringo album. Right. I mean, what a friend George is, uh, was just wonderful for him. Really, really stepped up to give him opportunities. Now, it probably didn't help that George was hauling Mal off for months on end to the the West Coast of the United States, as far as Mal's family life was concerned. But George couldn't, as a very young person, couldn't really see that horizon 
for himself at that time, I don't think. Another part of the story, which is just fascinating, and it, it really warmed my heart, there's a line in the book that is from the diaries, and it's from the time that John and Paul spend together in LA in 74. And it just says, nice to see him with John. Something along those lines where you get a sense that he, he got this immense relief around that time. Why do you think this was this was important for him to, to kind of see the, these two in particular back together for that what turned out to be unfortunately quite a brief moment? Well, I mean, it was brief, but you know, again, they would see each other a lot uh, yeah. with May Bank seventy four and seventy five. But um, I see where you're seventy four rather. I see where you're going uh, with that. But for Mal, you know, the most important part of human experience, and he may get a lot of this from from Eastern teachings, is friendship. He hates like the Dickens that they're not together. He hates that that these differences have torn them apart. I mean, Mal, I talked to May Pang about those sessions when John and Paul got together. I mean, those are great moments. It really, everybody felt, un, you know, it's too bad the material wasn't better in that jam, but so what? It was something. And, uh, you know, the two greatest artists, musical artists of the 20th century, reconnecting in that way, you know, it was monumental. But for Mal, it was it went back to friendship. When he would do anything he could to stoke that, anything that he possibly could. I think he did everything he could. There was simply, they were immovable objects until that, uh, the whole business with the uh, partnership was ironed out. A brief kind of side note before we, we start to conclude is that one of the things that comes across in the book is that Mao would actually be recognized just from the help cameo, especially in this kind of 70s time. How well well known was he in particular after the split? Was he someone that the kind of outside of the Beatle public was now someone that was quite well known? He really was, you know, and um, fans would recognize him everywhere. He would have people asking about anvils who had, let's face it, had barely known about that, that moment in Beatledom. Like you, I have a podcast and, Many of my guests who would see the Beatles knew who Mal was. I talked to Ann Wilson of Heart, and she and her sister went to see them um, almost like they were scouting out their future career in a lot of ways. I mean, they were that headfirst about it and spoke poetically. There's Mal. They knew who it was, carrying the big bass drum. That was part of the experience. People would chant Mal's name because, uh, you know, Americans are getting the Beatles book too. There are other kind of fan club uh, documents Mal's featured in 16 magazine and places like that so he was absolutely a known quantity mm. among real people did he enjoy that or did he find that difficult well he loved it <laughs> I mean absolutely loved it he adored it I mean that was part of the thrill for him <laughs> you know he loved to be recognized but there was also something very genuine about Mal he didn't want you to recognize him and then be brushed off by him. He would then want to have a conversation with you. You know, Mal was useful to them because he was the guy that if they didn't want to go talk to somebody, Mal would love it. He'd talk to them for hours. Mm. You know, Mal had a real gift of gab and and really he loved people. He, in fact, he said during one of his last interviews that all my life, all my life I've loved people. He said something to this effect. And, and I think kind of that's what I do best. People really did enjoy, you know, while they might sit down with Burt Lancaster at a party in 64 and think, what are we doing here with this guy? Mal's ready to go. You know, he'll talk about movies all night. <laughs> and if they run out of that topic, he'll talk talk about Burt's kids, right? Uh, he just had that skill. Talking of kids, we should bring it back 
to Mal's family. By the time that the split happens, Mal's got a, a daughter, Julie, alongside uh, Gary and, of course, Lily at home. How was Mal seen at home as the Beatles um, split happens? What was home life like for him? Well, you know, home was uh, was difficult, right? Sometimes it would feel like a respite from the madness. Others, it would feel as though he's gone from running around with George Harrison and meeting Bob Dylan and hanging out with the band to cleaning out the rabbit hutch. So it could be bifurcating uh, for Mal. It's a shame that circumstances or even himself wouldn't allow him to have more time at home to kind of regularize and normalize himself. He knew he needed that, by the way. I mean, there was that great remark late in his life to Laura Gross about uh, he wants to stay at her house. And for good reason, she says no. Hmm. But um, it's a it's a wonderful, a wonderful conversation because Mal says, I just need to go somewhere and get clean, maybe not do coke and drink all the time and clear my head. And he knew he needed that. Um, and of course, when she first said that to me, I thought, well, you have that. It's your home. It's in it's outside of London. You can't miss it. I want to leave the the circumstances ar- around the end of, of Mao's life really for readers to to find out best explained in the book rather than us talking about it too much but but touch on it we must in those final months and, and years of, of of Mao's life he's in America just tell us a little bit about what took him over there and what kind of position what kind of life he had in that kind of mid-70s period there was no reason for Mal to necessarily move there. He was working with George and scouting out studios. John would shortly be out there too. Um, Ringo was already uh, in Southern California a lot. So the three Beatles who aren't named Paul are going to spend a lot of time in California. And actually Paul spent a lot of time in California too. But hmm. uh, so they're out there uh, with him. And it's George who is with Mal when he sees the the photo of Fran Hughes on the wall and and thinks, wow, I'd like to know her. Um, and it's George who helps set them up. And uh, Mal, by the time he goes home for the Christmas holidays that year, is in love. And he's not telling anybody except perhaps Fran that he plans to move in with her and stay there. He's thinking, I don't know how well he's thinking. He's thinking that he's going to engineer this somehow. And in his mind, Lily and the kids will keep waiting for him in the United Kingdom while he goes and has this other life that they don't know about. Mm. So he has business reasons for being there in 74 and 75. But, you know, he's trying to keep his compartments, his watertight compartments from spilling one into the next. Right. He's trying to keep them separate. Sort of a, a final question on on Mao. As listeners will know, we lose Mal in start of 76. You must have had a sense and an idea of, of Mal at the start of this project. And obviously, as we're speaking now at the end of it, how different was it? What was it like living with this man who lived a short life, really, especially in comparison, as I said, to George Martin that you worked on previously? Did your view of him change over the course of your working on this book? Oh, absolutely. And I'd be irritated at times with him. I, I could understand and sympathize with his choices, but I could find him quite irritating. I mean, particularly that moment right during Revolver when Julie's born and they have to tell him to go back to Liverpool. But he's like all of us. He has depths and he's complicated 
And I guess what I like the most about the experience is knowing all that I know about him now, I still love him, right? My father said it best. He, he read maybe four or five drafts. And he said every single time you get to the end and you just want it to go a different way for Mal. It can't. You know, history knows it can't. There are moments, right, where a turn here, a move there could have allowed him to see the light. Um, you know, so like the Titanic, right? You know, maybe slow down before you race through the ice field. There are moments that where it's not too late. Mm. And uh, that's the mystery of the human condition and the human mind. I think he had known for quite a while that it was going to be over. Um, he just didn't know the date yet. Mm. We're kind of thinking about anthology a bit at the moment. And obviously the biggest hole in anthology is is John. But if you think about what, what someone like Mal would have brought to that project, you know, there's that there's that great little scene where Ringo and Neil are I think it might be LA and they're just kind of walking around and they're looking through these telescopes, looking out at the sea. So those lovely little moments of these two men that have obviously been friends for, you know, years and went through this huge experience together to have Mal in that kind of project. What do you think he would have brought to to us through the the 80s and 90s? If there had been any way for him even to see a glint of that, Mm. right? What might be out there? Who could really have seen it in 1976? We knew that the, the Beatles would be important and would continue to be important. But to imagine the kind of cultural swell that they would command in, you know, 1987 with the CDs or... You mentioned the anthology or the Beatles one in 2000 or the remasters, Beatles rock band Love. If Mal could have seen that, he would have loved all of this, right? And he would have been a part of it, uh, a central part. In fact, like Neil, he would have finally been uh, recuperated by putting in all those years. The wealth would have come, you know, when you're building a small business like that, though, which is really what Neil and Mal were doing. You don't see those fruits until later. Uh, I just, it hurts me and breaks my heart that Mal couldn't have seen something like that over the horizon. It would have been all he needed to live for. As usual, I love talking to you. I love reading your books. Uh, we should remind listeners that the book is Living the Beatles Legend, the Mal Evans story. Ken, thanks so much again for talking to us. Oh, well, thank you, Joe. And thanks for all you do. This is certainly one of the great podcasts. Thanks, Ken.